This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space, a monthly podcast of artist talks, panel discussions, and other events. Tēnā tātou katoa. No mai hoki mai ki tēnei kaupapa korero, or the Physics Room. No mai whakarongo mai whakatau mai. My name is Abby Kinane, and I'm the director of the Physics Room, a contemporary art space dedicated to developing and promoting contemporary art and critical discourse in Aotearoa. Based in central Ōtautahi since 1996, we assist artists with resources and opportunities to enable creative and professional development and work to support the acknowledgement and understanding of contemporary art among New Zealanders. Our goal is to actively seek links between the arts and other areas of cultural production, and to involve art as a contributing voice in wider intellectual, social and political debate. In this episode of Art Not Science, I talk with artists Nicola Farqua and Sarawit Song Sataya about their work in Heavy Trees, Arms and Legs, our off-site exhibition at the Suta Art Gallery Te Aratoi or Whakatū. Now in its last week at the Suta, this is an exhibition we're excited for you to learn more about, especially if you haven't been able to go and see it in Nelson. Heavy Trees, Arms and Legs is a line from UK-based poet Rebecca Tomas's poem, Palumo. The weight of limbs, branches, bones, roots, tendons, anchors this exhibition of new works by Nicola Farquhar and Sarawit Song's attire. The idea of gravity is a compositional force that shapes us as living bodies and connects us with elements in the natural world. As a whole, Heavy Trees, Arms and Legs considers the potential of imagined forms to generate more fluid understandings of the environment we are a part of. Heavy Trees, Arms and Legs is an exhibition developed by the Physics Room as a continuation of our program partnering with public galleries across Te Waiponamu and runs until Sunday the 18th of July. Read more about the exhibition and the artists on our website at www.physicsroom.org.nz. Now let's hear from Nicola and Sarawa. Kia ora mai tato. Kia ora kōrua, Sarawa <laughs> and Nicola. With this talk, it's in quite an interesting and unusual kind of position for me. Typically, I guess we have these artist talks just after the exhibition opens and everything feels quite fresh. The work is, of course, complete, but it's almost like the life of the work in the gallery has only just, just begun. But here we're speaking in the second to last week of the exhibition at the Suta Gallery in Nelson. So in some ways, I think it's going to have a slightly different perspective, different turn to a conversation in terms of being able to reflect back a bit on what has happened and what the work has meant and how those processes of making, I guess, come to a certain point of closure, but then the work itself is, um, yeah, has its own existence, almost like some level of autonomy or independence in the gallery. But just to start off, I wondered, because this is an off-site show, a number of the listeners won't have seen the work. I wonder if you could each, in your terms, describe the project, describe the pieces that you've made for this exhibition, Heavy Trees, Arms and Legs. For me, I would have started about maybe nearly a year's worth of work, I suppose, something like that. 
And so the works are all made at the same time. So I just work on a bunch of paintings at the same time and they slowly sort of get to a point where they're kind of finished. So I kind of end up with a group of works that all have been made, I guess, with the same sort of ideas and thoughts around them. But then they all sort of become like visual variations, I guess, on a set of ideas. There's a kind of sense of play with that as well because each of them is sort of trying to look at those ideas in a different way. Mm. Can you touch a little bit on some of the like core ideas that played across those 13 works? I guess these kind of, maybe it's a bit like sort of language forms, like the ways that these geometric forms, like circles and triangles and squares and other kind of units or different types of kind of visual units can kind of like be reformatted in different ways. Mm. And I think about that in terms of language, but also in terms of like biology and in terms of how natural organic things are made through the elements and compounds and things and how all these things are very, very small. And then they get sort of resorted into more and more complicated entities until we have sort of humans and animals and trees and fish or whatever. And so I guess the paintings use that same process of invention. Mm. So I think that's one of perhaps the broader areas. Mm. In science fiction, they sort of talk about world building, you know, it's one of those kind of themes that authors explore. And Mm. it is a kind of world building, you know, it's kind of like making a space and making characters or forms or something. For me, there's also like the development of language as a kind of a companion form to those things. So developing and then diving into the narratives and the language forms, which will allow other things to exist. I guess that was like very central to my thinking around the exhibition as well. Like even in that title, Heavy Trees, Arms and Legs, the way that it matters, the kinds of language that we bring to something that matters in terms of the actual material forms that exist and the way that we're able to engage and interact with those forms. Yeah, maybe we can come back to that too. I wonder, Sarah, would you be able to talk a little bit about the forms that you made? So in the show, I present five limestone sculptures. They are all hand-carved by me. And also I mix the stone with the um, beeswax. And in the beeswax, I have all these kind of the range of materials, some pebbles, some fish bones, um, some materials that I collect um, during my walk along the beach. Was, and then there are also some synthetic plastic stuff like fake eyelashes and nails. And I guess the work kind of trying to understand the ideas around place and body. Limestone is from Omeru. And as you might know that how the material is made is basically a composite of dead marine skeletal fragments. And the bees like itself also like made from you know, the bees, the insects. And yeah, how materials come together through different agents, different beings, and in a way, what we perceive as inert materials, they actually feel alive in a way, or mm. part of other living beings. <laughs> Mm. Or part of like dynamic processes, like even if it's a different understanding of aliveness, they're still moving and evolving and changing and shifting yeah. and hosting, you know, communities of other yeah, organisms yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. This is something that I thought about when we were working on the show and I, I don't know if we ever talked about it, but it came back to me just now when you mentioned that you mix the limestone 
and the beeswax. And I thought, no, you didn't. You didn't. Those things didn't actually mix at all. And I'm thinking here about, I guess, the points of contact between different materials or between different forms in your work. So we've talked a lot about the like relational ecology or different types of ways that things are connected. What about the physical connection of surfaces in your work? So in your case, the beeswax meeting the limestone. And Nicola, I'm thinking of the elements that were balancing on top of the works as well. I just wonder if that's something you guys have thought about these points of contact in a very uh, physical or, or conceptual, psychological kind of sense as well. Well, yeah, as I mentioned, I kind of think about the body and the way that I approach these materials as almost like trying to speak from a bodily experience, my own physical experience. So the way I carve the stone, the stone itself, you know, generally they are a stasis material, hard and heavy. Mm. And even the process of carving, I had to like use my whole body to kind of go, went around it, lift it, embrace it to move it, etc., etc. And the graininess of it, it's quite sandy compared to beeswax. It's, it, beeswax is a lot more versatile mm. and it's transformed from, you know, liquid to like this jelly-like state and become hardened almost like rubbery um, texture mm. so in a way I kind of think of the beeswax part in, in the work as this kind of fleshy material mm. um, where the stone itself is literally bone <laughs> I mean mm. they, they, they were made from skeletal fragments so there's this contrast between bones that sort of uphold the fleshy materials and also the shape of the sculpture themselves uh, based on you know shapes that contact that can contain and hold so like cups jars urns and even our belly <laughs> mm, mm. Um, so yeah that kind of ideas around body and being a container in some way yeah thank you for mentioning that relationship I, I definitely we talked a bit about the reference to bones but I hadn't really seen it and that um the connection of a fleshiness and a body to the yeah to the harder like structural forms of bones i love that image yeah what about you nicola i know that's a yeah maybe it's sort of a left field question but i think we talked a bit about balance and about weight but then of course implicit in those things are these sort of points of contact is that how does that sit with your thinking about the work I think that when you're sort of constructing i mean it's kind of an odd thing to do to construct an image of pieces within like a frame I mean some ways that kind of feels still feels quite absurd you know as a kind of um, activity or whatever but there's always these points of contact within that as well you know and the edges I always think with making paintings the edges are always really important and the shapes you know mm. how the edges meet and how they overlap and with me like the I guess sort of balancing the things on top of the painting yeah, I just feel like a compulsion to do that, really. Partly it's a way, I guess, of kind of just playing with the, the shape of the frame, but also it feels quite anthropomorphic to me anyway, but it kind of adds to that feeling, this idea that they might be a body with a head on top or a head with a hat on top or something mm. that kind of references their 
physicality in the world. So mm. something that suggests that they maybe are something that might have contact with something else in the world, maybe. Those kind of forces. I think that ideas of physics are actually quite relevant to painting. It feels yeah. like that, that you're not so much making a composition, but you're kind of just playing with these sort of forces mm. in a way. And not in mm. a sort of funny metaphysical way, but actually in like a practical way <laughs> in terms of getting things to sit together. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I um, like the way that, yes, it's a painting, yes, the surface is important, but the way that you've put together these elements, it does really emphasise the physical properties like weight and like the kind of organising principle of gravity as well. Mm. And to me, that's a very and strong... touch, you know, things like And that. the tactility, yeah. And I guess as well, when I think of surfaces, you know, we've talked a little bit about this idea of like scab or fossil or something, a, a point of contact that... It meets the world, but it might also change and shift over time as healing occurs or as um, the appropriate shelter is kind of offered. Just to return to that idea of gravity and weight, though, I guess this is like something that's been really a kind of centre of gravity for the show. It's really a strong point of connection in the way that, in my thinking about both of your works, the way that they suggest or, or have volume, the way that they're kind of heavy on the earth, the way that they bring together a number of things in balance, but also that seem to kind of um, share a sense of weight or a concentration of energy. Could we just talk a bit about, about the idea of weight and what that's meant to you or feel free to reject it as well. <laughs> as well. I suppose even going back to that title, the heaviness of the, the trees, the arms and the legs, the weightiness of the forms that we, that we are and that we live with as well. How is that sort of set in your thinking around the work? Maybe I can start. Yeah, with heaviness, I guess, it felt very satisfying for me coming from having this practice around, you know, making videos, um, 3D modeling on computers, very screen based practice to this kind of physicality where I had to use my whole body to work around this heavy material. And also the process of how the material was extracted and travel from one location to the other was was also new to me and wasn't an easy process. Mm. I mean, it would require like trucks and tractors and all these heavy machineries to be able to pull out the material off the earth. So there's, there's already this sense of attachment to the earth itself, to land. Mm. And I think in that aspect, it really helped ground me as, someone who wasn't born here, but to be able to touch and sand and cut through materials that physically form islands of New Zealand. That, that to me felt very, quite grounded and almost like, you know, really helped me understand what is the island made of. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, or this sense of connecting with the land and also, yeah, just the shape of them as well, the sculptures and how we arrange them around the exhibitions. To me, they appear as almost as anchors. Mm-hmm. So I kind of view them that way as well. And even the process of having to ask for a permission with, well, I did send email to like, um, whether or not there were any past settlements and she, she was able to confirm that to her knowledge there wasn't any um, because it wasn't near a river. Even that process of like, you know, having the material being this kind of 
a doorway for me as an art practitioner to establish a conversation or to talk to Evie about cultural protocols, her mission. Yeah, so I guess there's that kind of cultural weight that comes with dealing with materials from this land too. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm really glad you say that. I was thinking of the word like gravitas and gravity, like the the cultural weight, like in that sense, the significance of engaging with the natural world, which is necessarily a cultural world as well. Mm. I wondered just while we're speaking of this, you shared a story about Hine Ahu One, I believe, about the artist oh, yeah. who was engaging for the, sh- the sharpening of tools on her back. Is that something you'd be able to share again? Yeah, I think the first time that this sandstone goddess was brought to my attention was from Anna Iti, actually. Mm. She she came and viewed the work before I packed them into the crate. Um, so she told me about this uh, tour. Um, but actually she, actually, she represents sandstone, which I think, not exactly limestone, but yeah, in the same genre. of. Um, but yeah, she, the story was that she is the sandstone goddess that allows her brother to sharpen his axe on her back and traditionally Maori would use sandstone to sharpen the onamu. Apparently it's like the the only material that's hard enough to be able to withstand onamu. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it just seems to me that that was really, I guess in talking about these relationships, like all the levels of dialogue about the materials, like your conversation with Anna is a really important constituent part of, of part of this work, even though it might not be what we see in the room in any kind of tangible sense. Those narratives and those relationships are also material for the project. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. What about you, Nicola? Do you, I know we've talked about it somewhat. Is there sort of... um? I don't know, thoughts you had while you were making it or perhaps evolution of these ideas in the time that's passed since the making of that work around, I guess, the forces at play in your work, including the heaviness of materials or of ideas. I often think of my work as being quite heavy, (laughs) Mm. but seeing it and thinking about it in relation to Sarawat's work in this instance, of course, now suddenly they just feel really light, like they're just going to kind of take off into space (laughs) yeah it's given me maybe a difference of feeling when I look at them in the exhibition but yeah I think I kind of think about gravity a lot actually just as a way of disrupting the expectations of how a composition should work I suppose that there should be heavier things underneath and lighter things on top and I often think about environments where maybe gravity isn't isn't kind of, say, for instance, like if you're creating an artwork underwater or if you are creating an artwork where there was no atmosphere, you know, what that might encourage you to do. So I guess these kind of invisible kinds of things that give us a sense of how to make something, things like gravity, which we take for granted because it's, it's sort of there. But we, we sort of feel it in our, in our body, you know, mm. in the same way that we feel, like we feel that weight in our body. And if you go up to the top of a mountain or something, or if you go diving and you go sort of deep underwater, you feel, you feel the different pressures. So you have kind of a, like a bodily sense of where you are in space without mm. kind of understanding it. Mm. Yeah, those kind of thoughts, I think, Mm, mm. quite interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of the work offering information according to that narrative or 
allowing us to kind of think into the space of possibility of no, no atmosphere or a different weighting of gravity or some of these sort of possibilities as ideas, but also uh, like an extension of our understanding of the reality that we do live with in, in this, um, this world as well. You know, like we can go up a super high mountain or down deep in the ocean. Um, this is information that a painting could be expected to, to engage with, I guess, those, the physical realities of those things. And I think just ways is that you become outside your body. You know, we all sort of feel drawn to the sea, you know, like that's just a natural human thing. There's just this sort of knowledge that we come from the sea and that our bodies are mostly water. You know, mm. there's a sense that we should be dissolving, you know, at some point. And so just the same way that the water cycle works on the planet or whatever, just these things that are kind of physical, instinctive to us, which are quite puzzling because you feel that you can outthink it because our thinkingness is so, such a big deal to us. But actually, um, it's, those instinctive things are quite, it's still quite strong. Mm, mm. And maybe a painting or sculptural process has a particular capacity to hold some of those feelings in a way that thinking is a more linear form or we have different expectations about thought as such. Just on the water and the sea, it just reminded me, I wanted to ask you again about the naming of your work, Sarawat, if you could speak a little bit about the narrative that comes with that naming. So I titled the sculptures, five of them under the same name called Seaside Town. I guess I'm interested in this kind of transversal space and relationship between land and sea. You know, when you go to the beach, and it's almost like the seaside and the beach is, to me, almost kind of like a transitional zone where it's not really concrete land or it's, and it's not really in the water either. And I guess I think of all the communities that live along the shoreline, crabs, shells and all these little fishes and crustaceans uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah all these like little tiny communities that somehow materially help form the sense that the limestone itself mm. but also you know seaside town you think of a seaside it's often a place of connection too when you when you depart or when you arrive somewhere. In the past, you know, people travel by boat, but it's also a reference to a town where my dad was born, where he's quite, a, he's from this part of Thailand in the East Coast. So he's like a big fan of like seafood and all these kind of seaside activities. Mm. And I guess New Zealand itself is, you know, island. And if you think of our big cities, it's all around along the coast. So in a way, the naming ties itself to the material that made it, but mm. also almost like a cultural connection between different countries. Yeah, no matter where you're from, you you understand, you know, the connection between land and water. And mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also the way that those um, ideas or things like intersect in you, you know, like it's part of that sort of triangular relationship that involves you always in the work. I remember reading this just after coming back from Nelson after installing and opening the show and I always need to send it to you guys so I just wanted to read this Gregory Bateson quote it's like a philosopher and he wrote this book in the 70s called Mind and Nature and Necessary Unity so um, it's some different ideas but it's very much working in this realm of thinking about the interconnectivity 
ecological and other ways that we're sort of participating in. And he's thinking a lot about patterns in this particular chapter. He writes, what pattern connects the crab to the lobster and the orchid to the primrose and the fall, the four of them to me and me to you and all the six of us to the amoeba in one direction and to the backward schizophrenic in the other. So without going to like super detail, I suppose, I just wanted to share that because I felt like this chapter as a whole is great. You guys should read it. Also the ideas of scale that we talked about at the beginning and going right down to kind of microscopic relationships that might happen in the materials that you're working with and then right up much bigger space of relationships between people and then um, between ideas and between things kind of uh, cosmological or outside of our kind of the kind of space and time that we experience on earth. The sense of like a fracturing of reality or a multiplicity of realities is very much part of like my contemporary experience. I suppose I feel like your works both accommodate that possibility of multiplicity and pluralities very gracefully actually. So that's something to offer in this like moment of very fractured reality and of very many screens and of all of these mm. things. There's something very heavy and calming and um I was just thinking about when you're reading the quote and talking about the idea of multiple sort of realities. It makes me think as well as how you you make sense of what you're doing, what you're thinking about through, you sort of project those into some other form of logic. Like, for instance, for me, it's like kind of reading stories, you know. If I read made-up stories, fiction, then that helps me to understand the physical day-to-day reality of the world everyone sort of has different ways that they kind of make sense of their the way they live so it's kind of like it's like you've got a sort of a running film or something I think in your head of almost like when you go to sleep and you dream and your brain kind of like reworks everything you've done and sort of resorts it in some kind of bizarre way that you could never imagine consciously and it's just your way of somehow recalibrating your relationship to what you've done or something to talk about anchors again I guess it's like we need those kind of stories or, or something whatever it might be as some way of kind of anchoring we have something that's not real to help us to understand things that are real absolutely okay. yeah yeah um, even if it's a sort of a temporary logic but it's like necessary mm-hmm. for the temporality in which it you know mm-hmm. like makes sense for a time it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. a kind of a empirically provable sort of meta mm. theory mm. yeah yeah would you say I know you've you've done some writing like in relation to this work Nicola and you're continuing to sort of write as some um, connected but maybe parallel practice to your painting I just wondered if you could talk about that for a minute and and how that relates to the logic of the paintings or where that story sits in relation to the these other narratives you've mentioned how does that feel for you like how does that work for you I think it's kind of just like an extension of the strangeness of the way that when you're making work by yourself, you're kind of talking to yourself. It's quite an odd experience and you're not talking to yourself literally, although you might, I suppose, but it's this idea that there's, um, it always feels like there's more than one person kind of making the work, I think for me. And so writing, I guess for me, the writing's kind of like, um, imagining that experience of making as something that's quite crowded with people or Mm. at least in conversation with someone else Mm. maybe and so maybe that just helps me to kind of process the um the situation but also for me it's just been a way of also of just developing um you know imageries and motifs and things like that that kind of get folded back into the paintings 
Mm. So mm. it's kind of just like going into a forest or something and pulling out a jumble of materials and then kind of just trying to make sense of things. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I really like that description. It sort of takes me back to what someone said at the beginning about, about the development of language, a sort of necessary development in order to make enough space for those imagined forms, be that in writing or, or in visual forms. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? I'm just thinking of this idea of like the solitude of making and also of, um, I guess, sort of subcurrents in practice. So the work that you present in the exhibition space is obviously one very clear, significant manifestation of all the thinking and imagining that has been happening. But I'm remembering back to when we first spoke about this exhibition and you were heading down to, to Tai Potini to the West Coast and doing research practices there as a kind of recurrent exercise. And I'm aware that's still going. I suppose my question is how you navigate some of the sort of solitudes and relationships of the research process, how that works for you, how that feels for you. Do you like making work alone? <laughs> I do, but I think also like what Nicola said before, like I, I often felt like I make work collaboratively. Yes. Because even with the material itself, it's not just like suddenly arrive in my studio. Mm. you either go to art store or you source it from encountering with different people different way of transportation and all these infrastructures that you live in um, mm. and that's the same with going down to the south island i mean of course there's like rural and remote parts of the country but that is when you think of people <laughs> there's less people down there but i mean there's other things you know there's like cliffs, rocks and trees and all birds and all these other elements that, yeah, I don't know. I never felt like I'm alone. So I don't know if I can relate to that idea of solitude. Um, yeah. No, that, that's really interesting to me. I guess I, I always think of the kinds of communities of thought that we or that I'm wanting to participate in as being forms of companionship. And I don't, yeah, I certainly don't feel like as a curator, I, I seek or work in solitude. And I suppose I'm always interested to hear artists' accounts of how they participate in community. But And I don't mean just people, mm. but how acts of making are always kind of relational. They're always like trying to build some sense of something shared or a new understanding of place or something like that. Yeah. Well, I guess even, you know, when you're in studio alone, making work, you're still dealing with your thoughts which are not just in the moment or in at present like you think of the past you think of potential futures so in some way even with your own like this kind of collaborative time yes thinking and yeah that's a really really interesting idea but i like also that you take it back to this like very pragmatic um like their relationships and their like phone calls and emails and all these sort of like really grunty infrastructural um, things that need to happen in order to make work. Like to me, I love that balance that you're organizing the track. You're also thinking through some of the narratives and the work and they both have their own kind of depth and texture. Like it's not like one's the important conceptual Mm. work and one's the practical things. Yeah. Your idea is always collaborative, you know, because, you you think of what you read and like what you read is written by someone else and there's all these like roots and things that branch off from mm. from you. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. What, yeah. Yeah. 
just a final question. I know that you're working together to kind of reimagine, represent the show in a different situation at Coastal Science in Tamaki. I wonder if there was one or some, I guess, what you're thinking about now in relation to this work. Um, what to not have, you know, mm. and what mm. difference that will make. And I'm thinking about sort of including a new work as well that I tried to finish for the show in Nelson and I didn't quite get it finished. So I quite like the idea of having that in as well. So we'll see. And I mean, I feel like the show as it is now, it feels kind of like a dance. I almost feel like it's kind of calisthenic. I guess because I've got the hoops in my work as well. There just feels like there's a lot of kind of movement around the room. Yeah, and I'm wondering about when I visualise the reforming of the show, it actually feels more like, I don't know, someone's come in with a some kind of vacuum or something and kind of sucked it all in together a bit more. Yeah, maybe just that it will be less dispersed. Yeah, that's my sense at the moment. Mm. Yeah. That's very useful. There's lots of things that struck me once the work was out, like, for instance, just the way the works were sort of layered in the space with throw it sort of the horizon line that's round through the middle of the sculptures where the stone meets the wax. Mm. It's just such a beautiful kind of connection point between those two materials. And I felt that it mirrored my work in a way that I really, really enjoyed. Mm. So um, maybe even emphasising some of those those aspects, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah that kind of intertidal zone that happens, yeah. how all the works have their own horizons and there's yeah. like um, so much space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, um, I'm excited. Um, it's exciting to be working with new people in new space, but everything sort of orbits around the artwork. Yeah not other way around because often I don't know you collaborate with new people you start with like mind mapping together new ideas but and then the work come later but now this process is like the work's already there how do we orientate ourselves around it yeah <laughs> um, so that's that's exciting and kind of new a little bit yeah. and also just before we talk about solitude and collaboration I think yeah, it's, it, to me, it's a new collaboration and I'm excited that the work allow that to happen and that artwork allow not not only themselves evolve in new capacity, in new space, but also the people that attach to it also have new ideas and build new relationships from mm. it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited too. I was thinking about almost like this comet that's like, rocketing from where it is now and then it's like somehow perforating this different atmosphere in Auckland and some things will like fly off and be burned off and other things will like (laughs) melt or fossilize or it will go through like states of change I don't know I'm making it seem really dramatic I know it's just going on a track but at the same time like it's not not a comet you know (laughs) yeah Yeah. oh well just to finish I really just want to thank you guys again it's been very cool like I guess it's rare to me to be able to have a conversation that has super long legs like this. Like we started to talk maybe sometime last year or early this year in, in earnest about this project and um, the kind of cycle of return and return to the work has been really productive in my thinking about lots of things. So I really appreciate that. And I suppose the show is coming to a close, but I also, I don't think it's finished. Do you know, I think these ideas are like really got a, a long 
a long way to go. So I'm really interested to see what's next for you both. That was Nicola and Sarawit talking about their work in heavy trees, arms and legs. If you're based in Nelson or you happen to be passing through, make sure to see the exhibition before it closes on Sunday, 18 July. The Suter Art Gallery is open seven days a week from 9.30am to 4.30pm. Thank you for listening and tune in again next month on Friday the 20th of August at 8pm for our next episode of Art Not Science. Ka kite anō. The Physics Room is generously supported by Creative New Zealand, the Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Three Boys Brewery, Scientech, Resine Paints, and the Crater Rim.